Um, so good to be here with you this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Aaron Logan. Uh, maybe you've heard people talking about Chip, also me. It's a long story. Um, but uh, I, am, I am the children's ministry director here at Grace Church of the Valley, and I am so excited and blessed and honored to be able to open up uh, the word of the Lord with you this morning. So um, this morning we're going to be in the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to be in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6, so a little break from our, our time in Ephesians. We'll be in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, um, before we, we jump into this passage, I want to talk a little bit about how I, I landed here this morning. A few weeks ago, Scott sent me a text and he asked me if I could preach on Sunday the 21st, and I said, yes. And then I saw that I had a lot going on this week, and I said, still yes, uh, because any chance I get to open up the word of the Lord with you guys, I'm going to take it. Uh, but he told me I could preach on anything that I wanted, any passage I wanted, not anything I wanted. I'm sure there are some things that he wouldn't like me preaching on, but any passage I wanted in all of Scripture. And that's a really cool thing to hear for about uh, 30 seconds. And then you realize there's a lot of passages in Scripture, and it's a, it's a little intimidating. And so as I was thinking where I wanted to go, uh, this is a passage that, that came to mind, because this is a place that, that God has really had me a lot over the past few months. Um, in my own personal study, uh, he's had me here in, in uh, some, some work for seminaries, had me here, even uh, in our family devotions that we do at home. We, we've been in this passage. My son has been memorizing a verse from this passage, and so I've been here a lot, and uh, that actually kind of made me hesitant at first. I was like, I, I don't really want to go there. I feel like I've, I've been there so much, and even a few weeks ago when I did the scripture reading here on Sunday morning, I read from this passage, and so I was like, I, I feel like I, I've been there, I've done that, and and I don't want them to think that this is the only part of the Bible I've ever read. And so I, I wanted to go somewhere else. Um, but then as I sat down to prepare my lesson for seeds for our, uh, for our kids' uh, church time during the, the worship services, I sat down to prepare that lesson for last week. We were going through the whole Bible. We're going through the narrative of Scripture. We're going chronologically through it. And, and we've been talking about the story of Moses and Israel has been in the wilderness, and then finally I sat down for last week, and I opened up the curriculum, and I saw that we were going to be last Sunday in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So um, I'm pretty dense, but there's a point where I start to catch on that, that maybe this is where we need to go this morning. So uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 is where we're going to be. It's a, a wonderful, powerful, a well-known passage of Scripture, so many of you are probably familiar with it. Um, but before we jump in, let's talk a little bit about what Deuteronomy is, okay? So Deuteronomy is the, the fifth book of the Pentateuch, the, the last book of Moses, and that word Deuteronomy, what it actually means is, is second law or repeating of the law. So what we see in the book of Deuteronomy is this kind of second giving of the law, this repeating of the law that God has given to his people by Moses, so where we kind of come into the story here, this is Israel outside of the promised land at the end of their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. They're about to go into the promised land, and now Moses is giving kind of his final sermon, his final reminder to the people of who God is and what he demands of them before they go into this land that he has promised to their forefathers. And so this is, this is Moses' last sermon his, his kind of deathbed sermon before Israel goes in. At this point, they've been in the desert for 40 years. It's a completely different group of people than they left Egypt with, right? 
The whole Exodus generation has passed away with the exception of Joshua, Caleb, and Moses, and Moses is about to go, right? So this is Moses to this new generation reiterating all the things that God has done and all the things that God has commanded before they go into the promised land. So that's where we pick up. That's what's going on here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, this repeating of the law of the Lord. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to read through the whole passage, so 6, 1 through 19. We're going to read through all of it together, and then we're going to go back through and see uh, kind of what is there. So I'm just going to read straight through. Here we go, Deuteronomy 6, starting in chapter 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and rules that the Lord God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full... Then take care, lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you, off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us in this book, in scripture. God, we thank you that we can know more about you, about who you are, about what you've done, by opening the Bible. Father, I pray today as we unpack this passage that our eyes are opened to more of who you are, to the truth of who you are and what you've done, and that in knowing more about you, God, we would come to love you more. That would lead us to serve you more. Father, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so obviously a big chunk of text that we're going through today, a big, big passage, um, but let's go ahead and get started. So, 
Here Moses is, he's giving this this, uh, repetition, this repeating of the law before the people are going into the promised land. And he starts in this section by setting up the stakes of this covenant. He's repeating the covenant of God, and he starts by setting up the stakes of the covenant. So there in verses 1 through 3, look at verse 3. It says this, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them. Be careful to follow this covenant. Be careful to do the things that God has commanded, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. So it's this covenant, right? It's this promise, this this mutual promise between two parties, and Moses here is saying, listen to God, do what he has commanded, and this is what will happen. He says, it may go well with you, you will multiply, your days will be long in the land. If you look back to chapter 5, verse 33, he says, you shall walk in all the way that the Lord has commanded you, that you may live that you may live. These are the stakes of this covenant. These are the stakes of the covenant that Moses is about to explain again to Israel. That it would go well with you, that you would multiply, that you may live. Sets the stakes there in verses one through three. Then moving down to verse four, he set up the the stakes of the covenant. Now he's moving to to the content of the covenant. The content of the covenant. So in verse 4, he says this. This is a very famous part of scripture. It's known as the Shema. Uh, it's very, a very important part of scripture uh, to Jewish people. It's something that they say multiple times a day to remind themselves of. It's important to us as well. We'll get to why. But look at 6, verse 4. It says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So as he's going into the content of the covenant now, he starts with a statement of the character and nature of God. He starts with a statement about who God is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, is God. Yahweh is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God. The Lord is one. Now there's a lot of disagreement about exactly what is meant by this. There are people who argue for, for different things. Commentaries say a lot of different things on it. But, but essentially, when we see this statement, I think there are two major takeaways for us about who God is, about his nature. Two major things that are being declared here in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is God. He is God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of the Bible, the God of our fathers, the God of Israel. He is is God. It's a statement of his holiness. It's a proclamation that Yahweh is God, that he is creator and everything else is creation. A statement of his holiness that he is set apart fundamentally from everything else in existence. Yahweh is God, and then he says Yahweh is one. It's a statement of his unity. That the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, that he is one, he is singular, he is unified in himself. Now you have to remember the context of the world that these Israelites are living in, right? Their parents were raised in Egypt, in this this polytheistic culture. And now, here they are, and they're surrounded by these peoples, they're about to go into the land of Canaan, where it is filled with these people 
who are polytheists, people who have all these different gods. And so this simple statement of who God is is simple, but it's profound. The Lord is God. Yahweh is God. Yahweh is one. He alone is God. And there's only one. Statement of his holiness, statement of his unity. It rebukes the God of the pagans, the gods of the pagans, by stating that God alone is God. He is different, not just in caliber, but in category from all of these false gods of the world around them. He is the one and only true creator God, and he is unified. There's only one. The Lord is God, the Lord is one. This statement of who the God of Israel is there in verse four, and then moving into verse five, we see the right response to the reality of who God is. Yahweh is God, he is one. Verse five, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all your might. Because Yahweh is who he says he is, because he is creator and everything else is creation, because he is one, because he is the only true living creator God. Because all of that is true, now Israel, the people of God, you shall love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Now we could spend time trying to finally divide what, to, what is loving God with, with your heart, what is loving God with your soul, what is loving God with your might. In the New Testament, when Jesus quotes this, he actually adds a category and says, loving God with your mind. And there's some linguistic things for why that happens. But, but ultimately, what is being communicated here is that in light of who God is, the proper response to him is to love him with everything that you are. To love him with absolutely every fiber of your being. Every aspect of you is to be devoted to loving the God of the universe, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of scripture, the God of Israel. Because he is who he says he is, our only right response is to love him in a way that permeates ourselves. To love him with everything. Jesus calls this the first and greatest commandment. It says that this is the greatest commandment in all of Scripture, that in this, the covenant of God is summed up. It's command to love him. It is a self-permeating love. And he moves on and he continues to tell us what this response to God's character looks like. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. Then verse 6, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So he goes from this, you should love God with every fiber of your being, with every bit of who you are, to be devoted to loving God. And then he moves to show what that looks like And this is a love that not just permeates our character, not just permeates our person, but it permeates our lifestyle. He paints this picture of your life being filled with the love of God. That everything you do is done to the glory of God. That everything you say is said to the love of God. That your conversations, your meals, your interactions with your children, the clothes that you wear, all of this is built around this love of God. It is infused with this love of God. He paints this picture of a life 
permeating, self-permeating love of God that fills every fiber of who we are and everything that we do, every meal that we eat, every word that we speak, every action that we participate in, everything is filled with this love of God. Now, I want to make a, a little side note here because this is actually where I thought I would spend most of the sermon. Um, it, it's, so, it's so interesting right here as, as Moses, as God through Moses gives this commandment, this, this commandment that Jesus points to and says is, is the first and greatest commandment, the most important commandment in all of scripture, that as God gives this commandment, he sets up a way for this commandment to be transmitted. Did you notice that? He gives this commandment to Israel and then he gives them a, a primary means by which they are to transmit this very, very important commandment. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. It's so interesting that the God of the universe, giving the most important commandment in all of creation, he sets up the way to pass this commandment on, and he says, it's parents. Parents, teach this commandment to your children. Parents, teach your children what it means to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. Show your children what a life that is permeated with the love of God looks like. It's the primary means by which he sets up this commandment to love God is for parents to pass it on to their children. It's an incredible thing. I thought that's where we were gonna be most of the morning, but then as I read through here by the word of God and the spirit of God, we're going a little bit different direction, but I didn't wanna miss that. That's an important, important commandment to parents especially. Show the love of God through their actions to their children. All right, so there's the, the stakes of the covenant, the statement of God's nature, his unity, his holiness, this right response to his character. It's a love that permeates our person and a love that permeates our lifestyle. And then, then starting in verse 10, verses 10 through 16, he goes into talking about some pitfalls, some covenant pitfalls, some dangers along the way as we attempt to live out our part of this covenant, as we attempt to live a life of love of God that permeates ourself and permeates our lifestyle. He sets up these dangers, these temptations, these covenant pitfalls that will get in the way of our covenant faithfulness. And those pitfalls are prosperity, paganism, and petulance. Let's go through them one at a time. Uh, first, prosperity. Prosperity, starting in verse 10, look at what he says. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that, swore, that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So he warns them of this danger of prosperity. This danger of prosperity. Keep in mind, this is a generation of people who have spent their entire lives in the desert. They've never known anything but poverty. 
They've never known anything but this nomadic existence, wandering through the desert, living in tents, eating bread from heaven and water from rocks, right? That's the only thing that these people that he's talking to have ever experienced. And here they are, they're about to go into the promised land. They're about to have houses they didn't build, orchards they didn't plant. They're about to have abundance. God is about to fulfill his promise to them, and he is going to give them so much that comes with a warning. This warning of prosperity. This is something that we see all throughout scripture. You see, you and I, we fear, we fear poverty. We fear losing things. We, we fear losing our house. We fear losing our job. We fear losing money. We fear holding on to game stock, stock too long because we think it's just going to go up forever, right? We fear loss and we fear poverty. But the Bible actually warns us much more about the dangers of prosperity. Book, in the book of 1 Timothy, in chapter 6, Paul is talking to Timothy and he warns him to, to avoid the love of money. The love of money because it is the root of all kinds of evil. In Proverbs chapter 30, the writer of that Proverbs says, God, give me, neither, give me food only that is needful for me. Food that is needful for me, lest I be fool and say, who is the Lord? Lest I be hungry and be tempted to steal and profane your name. In Matthew 19, Jesus himself talks of this danger of poverty. When the rich young ruler comes to him, he says, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. And the ruler, what does he do? He goes away sad. And Jesus says that famous line, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the question is why? What is the danger of prosperity? Why are riches coming with warnings? Put simply, the danger of prosperity is comfort. The danger of comfort is complacency. It's a lack of focus a lack of of dependence. It's a forgetfulness of who God is, of what he's done, and of how we need him. We are a naturally forgetful people. It's so easy for us when our stomachs are full, when our jobs are secure, when our homes are warm and comfortable. It's so easy for us to forget our need for God. We forget our need for a savior because we don't realize that we're in danger. And so he gives this warning to the people of Israel, things are about to get a lot easier for you on the day to day. So be careful not to forget the God that brought you here. Be careful not to forget the God who gave you those gifts. He warns them against prosperity. The next warning that he gives them is a warning against paganism. Look in verse 13. It is the Lord your God that you shall fear, Him you shall serve, by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, and he is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. He's warned against prosperity, now he warns against paganism. Against the desire to seek after other gods that as you have forgotten the God of your salvation in your prosperity, now there's a danger that you will seek after other gods, the gods of the pagans. And what's the reason that he gives? Well, why does he say that we should not do this? 
Verse 15, for the Lord, your God, in your midst is a jealous God. We're not to seek after other gods, not to fall into this trap of paganism, because God is jealous. God is jealous. I think we need to take a little bit and, and define what that word means. Because for most of us, the, the, the word jealous doesn't carry connotations that we would apply to God, right? We hear the word jealous and, and we get pictures in our head maybe of, of like a jealous boyfriend. Who doesn't, who doesn't want his, his girlfriend talking to male coworkers? And it's this kind of like ugly, insecure, petty, angry, even violent kind of jealousy. And it's gross. We don't like it. It makes us uncomfortable. And so then when we take that same word and we apply it to God, we get all those kind of gross, uncomfortable feelings. But the jealousy of God is not like the jealousy of man. It's not like the jealousy of a jealous boyfriend. Because what makes that jealousy wrong is its pettiness. What makes it wrong is the fact that he's jealous for something that doesn't belong to him. But when we talk about the jealousy of God, he's not jealous for something that doesn't belong to him. He's not a petty small God jealous of these idols of the pagans. He's not jealous of something, he's jealous for something. And what is he jealous for? He's jealous for his people. He's jealous for their hearts, he's jealous for their lives, he's he's jealous for their praise. He is ultimately jealous for his glory. He is jealous for his glory. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, he says, I am Yahweh, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. That is my name, my glory I will not give to another. When we talk about God's jealousy, what we're talking about is the fact that God is jealous for his glory. That God desires the glory of his name. He deserves the glory of his name. It is his and his alone. He is the only one who can rightfully receive the praises of his people because he is the only one who deserves all glory and honor and praise. And so he is jealous for his glory. And so paganism, seeking after other gods, idolatry, steals the glory of God gives it to an idol, and it kindles the wrath of God. It kindles his holy wrath because it is stealing the rightfully deserved glory of the creator of the universe and offering it up to creation. It's the danger of prosperity, the danger of paganism, and the danger of petulance. Now I know some of you are like, what in the world does petulance mean? A couple of you looked it up on your phone, a few of you are English majors and you're already there. But I had to use a P, right? Because that's what they tell you in seminary, otherwise, you know, you get disbarred. That's not, anyway. Um, so petulance. Look at, look at verse 16. It says this, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. That at Massa, what he's picturing there is something that happens in Exodus chapter 17. It's a familiar story probably for most of you. It's Exodus chapter 17, and what it is, is Israel is wandering in the desert. They're, they're out in the desert, they've left Egypt, and they start grumbling. They start complaining, they start getting thirsty. 
And they start saying things to Moses, saying, hey, where's our, where's our water? Moses, we're thirsty. Did you just bring us out here to die? It even says in, in chapter 17 there of Exodus, it says that they say, is God still with us? Did he bring us out here to kill us? Is the Lord still among us or not? So that's what's pictured here. That's the testing that Moses is referring to. I think it's important because we have to distinguish between testing and requesting, right? There's this commandment here to not test God, but we also have commandments in Scripture to make requests of God. In Philippians chapter 4, it's a commandment to make our requests known to the Lord. So what's the distinction? What's the difference between testing God and requesting of God? Well, the answer is attitude. The difference is petulance. What is petulance? What's the definition of that word? It's having a bad attitude. Petulance is is irritation. It's impatience. If you want a perfect word picture, or picture, not word, you want a perfect picture of what petulance looks like, then I invite you over to my house any day around 1.15 or so um, when my son has not eaten his lunch the way he was supposed to, and it's about time for nap, but he doesn't want to go down to nap, and you're going to see what petulance looks like, okay? Because my three-year-old, he's normally very polite, he's a good kid, and, and he'll ask for his, his snack, and he'll say, Daddy, can I please have some yogurt? And, but at 1.15, when he hasn't eaten his lunch, and he ha- should be down for nap, and he's not down yet, that, Daddy, can I please have some yogurt, turns into, I want yogurt, right? And that, that is petulance. All right, so that is what's pictured. That's what Israel does. That's how they act, like a, like a hungry, tired three-year-old. That's what we are warned against here. Do not test God. Do not make requests of God out of petulance the way that the Israelites did in the wilderness. It's not simply making a request of God. It's making a demand of him. They weren't asking in faith. They were demanding that God do their will on their timeline. It's this impatience, this lack of faith, this lack of trust, and ultimately a lack of humility. So as Israel is about to go into the promised land, Moses is reminding them of the covenant. Stakes of the covenant, the content of the covenant, to love God with all of your heart, soul, might, strength. And the covenant pitfalls. The, the things that get in the way of loving God how we should. Things to look out for, temptations, warnings, warnings of prosperity, of paganism, and of petulance. So we've established those things. We've established the stakes that you may live long in the land, that you may live the command to love God, the pitfalls of covenant faithfulness. So then the question is, what does success look like? What does success look like? What does covenant faithfulness look like? What does loving God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might, what does that look like practically? How is that lived out? There are a lot of people today in, in our culture and supposedly Christian circles who will answer this question of what does loving God look like in a reductive way. In the New Testament, when Jesus says that this is the first and greatest commandment, he says the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And in these are contained all the law and the prophets, right? He says that in this commandment to love God, along with the commandment to love neighbor, is all the commandments of God. 
And so people in, in, our, in our day, people in our culture have taken those two commandments and they've looked at them reductively. They, they've failed to define the terms biblically. And so they say that, that loving neighbor, they, they use this as a, as a way to, to excuse or to accept or even to deny the existence of sin because they don't define love of neighbor in a biblical way. So they use it to, to brush sin under the rug. And then this commandment to love God, they fail to define what that looks like biblically. They fail to define what love looks like. They fail to define what God looks like. So they redefine God on their terms rather than his. So now the love of God is simply a thinly veiled love of self. We don't want to do that this morning. We want to be careful to understand and to define what loving God looks like based not on our terms, but on God's. Not on what we think and what we feel, but what God says in his word. So, what does love of God look like? Look at verse 17. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and you shall do what is right and good in whose sight? In the sight of the Lord. You want to know what love of God looks like? You want to know what it looks like to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might? It looks like obedience. It looks like knowing the word of God, knowing the law of God, and obeying. Jesus says this in John chapter 14. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now notice the words of Jesus there don't leave any room for discussion. He doesn't say, if you love me, you will try to keep my commandments. He doesn't say, if you love me, you might keep my commandments. He doesn't say, if you love me, you will keep the commandments that feel good to you. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love of God necessarily leads to obedience. Loving God necessarily always leads to obedience. Does that mean that if we love God, we never disobey him? Well, no. But we never disobey God. We never love God by disobeying him. If we love God, we obey his commandments. And this obedience is not simply a legalistic working of the will. It's not simply us trying our hardest to obey him. No, it's an overflow of the love that we have for our creator playing itself out in our actions, in the way that we live our lives. If we love him, we obey him. These are the things that Moses reminds Israel of before they enter the promised land. Reminds them of the covenant that they've made with God. Reminds them of the importance of loving God. Paints this picture of loving God as obeying his commandments. Of not falling to the temptation of prosperity or paganism or petulance. But living a life wholly devoted to the God of the Bible. 
to loving and serving and following him. Moses wrote this before they entered into the promised land. In God's providence, we have the rest of scripture as well. And so we can fast forward and we can look to the stories of the judges, the stories of of the kings of Israel, of the prophets. We can see how this works out for Israel. And what we see time and time again throughout the Old Testament, throughout the narrative of Israel, what we see is that they fail miserably. That they utterly fail to keep up their end of this covenant of loving God with their heart and their soul and their might. They fail time and time again. They fall into all of the pitfalls. They get complacent in their prosperity. They worship other gods in paganism. They they ask of God, demand of God with petulance. They test God. They fail over and over and over again. And sometimes it can be discouraging reading this this account in the Old Testament because you see, man, the people of God are terrible. They, They don't do what they're called to at all. The reality is is that you and I fail as well. We fail as well. We fall into these same pitfalls. When our lives are easy, when things are going well, when things are going good, we, we forget God. We forget God in our prosperity. When things are hard, when they're difficult, we make demands of God. We ask of God out of petulance. We, we test God. When our lives are filled with all kinds of other things that we're tempted to love more than we love God, we worship those things. We idolize them. We become pagans. Israel utterly fails to live up to its side of this covenant. We utterly fail to live up to our side of this covenant. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus doesn't. The Bible tells us that he was tempted in every respect, yet without sin. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. There's a passage here in the New Testament that is so parallel to what we just read in the Old. See, Moses was giving that, that command, delivering that sermon at the end of 40 years of wandering in the desert. At the end of 40 years, Moses is giving these commandments, these warnings against Prosperity against paganism and against petulance at the end of 40 years in the desert. And in Matthew chapter 4, what we see is Jesus at the end of 40 days in the desert facing three temptations. And Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here Jesus is, 40 days in the desert. He's hungry, he's thirsty, he's tired. Satan comes to him and tempts him and says, If you are the Son of God, then command these stones to become bread. He tempts Jesus with prosperity. He says, your stomach's empty right now, isn't it? You're hungry right now. You're tired right now. What you really need, what will fulfill you, is if you meet those needs. If you fill your stomach. Your biggest problem right now is your empty stomach. It's the temptation of prosperity. 
tempts him to fill his stomach so that he might forget his father. But what does Jesus say? He rebukes it. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but what? By every word that comes from the mouth of God. Temptation of prosperity, Jesus overcomes it. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on, the hands, on their hands uh, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He's actually quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6 there. He, Satan says, If you're really who you say you are, then throw yourself off and demand that God save you. But Jesus knows that we are not to make demands of God out of impatience. We're not to demand that he move on our timelines. We're not to test the Lord our God. And so he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6 as Satan tempts him with petulance, but he overcomes and he rebukes that temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Once again, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter six. Satan says, If you kneel before me, then all of this will be yours. If you simply bow the knee to the pagan God, if you simply worship me, if you simply steal glory that belongs to your Father in heaven and you give it to me, then everything you could ever want will be yours. And what does Jesus say? He says, no. Because scripture tells us that we should worship the Lord our God and him alone should we serve. He's overcome the temptation of prosperity, the temptation of petulance, and now he rebukes the temptation of paganism because he knows that the glory of God belongs to God and no other. Jesus rebuked the devil. He conquered the temptations that we all fall prey to. He conquered the temptations that Israel fell to over and over and over again. Jesus stood firm. Jesus fulfilled the terms of the covenant that God set with his people. And so now we can look to the life of Jesus. We can look to Jesus as an example. We can see Jesus as an example of what it is to live a life completely devoted to love of the Father. What it is to live a life completely devoted to loving God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might. If we want a picture of what that life looks like, we have it in the life of Jesus. So we see Jesus' life as an example of this covenant of love fulfilled, of it played out, of covenant faithfulness. We have Jesus as that example. He lived the perfect life. He lived the perfect life. So we can see him as our exemplar, but he's more than that. Because you see, if all that Jesus was was an example of loving God rightly, If all that Jesus was was an example of fulfilling this covenant, 
then the gospel would not be good news. Because if we just hold our lives up to Jesus' life, it's not going to take very long before we realize that we are wretched, broken, depraved sinners, and that Jesus is righteous. So if Jesus is only our example, then he does not bring us hope, he brings us hopelessness. Because he shows us the depths of our sin. If Jesus is only our example, then we're lost. We have failed to live up to our end of the covenant. We have failed to love God as we ought to. And now the wrath of God is kindled against us. But Jesus is not just our example. He's not just our example. He's also our Savior. See, he lived the perfect life that we couldn't. He died the death that we deserved, taking our place, taking the wrath of God that we kindled, taking that on himself. And then he rose again that we might have new life and that we might have his righteousness. He's not just our example, but he's also our savior. We look to his example, but we rest in his accomplishment. We rest in the fact that in him, a new and better covenant might be fulfilled. A new and better covenant might be fulfilled in Christ. That first covenant, the covenant made with Israel, was if you follow me, if you serve me, if you follow my commandments, then it'll go well with you. You'll live long in the land, you'll multiply. Your days may be long in the land flowing with milk and honey. But this new covenant, the covenant fulfilled by Christ, by his active obedience, by his living the perfect life that we couldn't, dying the death that we should, and rising again so that we could have his righteousness imputed to us, this new covenant does not promise simply life in a land filled with milk and honey. It doesn't promise just that our days will be long. It promises eternal life. Eternal life, not in the promised land of Canaan, but no, in the promised land of heaven. Eternal life spent in the house of our Father. Eternal life spent in the house of our King, in the house of our God. Eternal life spent with the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, eternally giving him glory. Because he is the Lord. He is God, and there is no other. It's the good news of Jesus, the good news of the covenant of love fulfilled in the God-man Jesus Christ that we might be brought into the family of our Lord and King.